Well, please remain standing with me and turn in your Bibles to the book of Colossians, um, chapter 1. Uh, if you are visiting with us and don't have a Bible or aren't familiar with the Bible, you can always grab one in the pew rack there in front of you and find it on page 983. And we've also printed it for you on page 10 of your worship guide. This is God's Word, Colossians 1, starting with verse 15, reading through verse 23. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven making peace by the blood of the cross and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him if indeed you continue in the faith stable and steadfast not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let me pray and ask God's blessing on his word preached. Let's pray again. Father, Son, and Spirit, as we have come into your presence, singing your praises, confessing our sins, hearing the gospel, we pray now. With the power of the new creation that comes through your word, change us. Maybe some of us for the first time giving us eyes to see Jesus as the Savior we need. But for all of us, drawing us to see the glory of the one who is both fully God and fully man. And our Savior, our elder brother, and the King of Kings. And so we are praying this in his name. Amen. Well, if you, uh, if you frequent Christian bookstores or kind of get emails updating you on the latest Christian trends, it's obvious that kind of what appeals to us as Americans is what's typically called uplifting Christianity. We want uplifting Christianity that makes us feel good about being ourselves. We want to be lifted up all the time because we just don't like being me. Look in the mirror, I don't like me. Look at the way I interact with people, I don't like me. I don't like this broken person and I don't like this broken world and I just want to feel better about it. But interestingly, that's just not a word that the Bible uses, uplifting. Um, in fact, it's like getting candy. It's sweet for a moment, it gives you a little rush, a little sense of pleasure, but a moment, and then it just doesn't satisfy for the long run. Instead, the words that the Bible uses, I'm going to go much deeper, words like joy and peace and hope, 
Like, they look at the stark realities. The Bible is just willing to look at the stark realities of how immensely broken that we are and immensely broken that the world is and give us something that both addresses those realities and provides joy in the midst of those realities. Joy goes so much deeper because it confronts, it addresses in light of the gospel, the real hope that is ours in Jesus Christ alone. But the problem with our experience of joy is that our experience of joy is directly tied to, dependent on the depth of the diagnosis. So, for instance, if, if you go for your yearly physical and you're feeling fine and the doctor says to you, you know, great, you're in good health, everything looks healthy, that's a bit of relief. It's a bit of good news, but it doesn't really produce joy in you. On the other hand, if you're a cancer survivor and you've just gone through chemotherapy and you're at the back end of it, you've had your scans and the doctor says to you, I have good news, you are in good health, everything looks fine the joy that erupts from you in that moment is inexpressible. It is directly dependent on how utterly bad the diagnosis is. So much of our joyless, powerless interaction with the gospel is because we just don't want to admit how bad we really are. Are. And one of the problems that the Colossian church is facing is that they're, they're combining a little bit of the world's solutions with a little bit of Jesus. And Paul is saying to them, you have come up with something that ultimately, because it does not confront the deep reality of sin, has no power in your life. And so Paul takes us from the preeminence of Christ in verses 15 through 20, this hymn in verses 15 through 20 that either Paul penned or had been being sung by the church to talk about the preeminence, the the incredible dignity, the worth, the glory of Jesus to God's assessment in verse 21 of the deep problem of sin. And it's just not pretty. He uses three words, you who were once alienated, hostile in mind, and doing evil deeds. This is who we are outside of Christ. And they're strong words. Words like alienated is very strong language. It implies conflict, enmity, children who are in rebellion against their parents and have no relationship with them are in alienated mode. They're alienated from their family or or countries that are in conflict at war with each other are alienated from each other strong language and and here's what Paul saying this is what sin has done it has alienated us from God because it provokes his wrath he's not tame this is the one who Paul has said has created all things holds all things together, has made all things for his own 
And when his wrath is provoked, all of his ruling power is brought in judgment. Here's how David describes the Lord coming in his power in judgment against sin in Psalm 18. It's, it's, it's stark, it's harsh. Then the earth reeled. This is the Lord coming in judgment against sin. The earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and a devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of wind. And when the Lord comes in that way, nothing stands in his presence. Sin has alienated us from God because it's provoked his wrath. But we're not just passive victims here. It's not like we've just sinned and mistaked. We're made and that provokes God to make the heavens come down, draw his bow and ride his war chariot to us. Rather, the reason we are alienated is because we are hostile in mind to God. Sin is rebellion. It's not just something that we do. Sin before it is something that we do. Before we do sin, sin is a power that is at work in us and as a result have made us willingly hostile to God because sin as a power has a tendency. It is like momentum. It is a power with a tendency. The power of momentum has a tendency to push things forward, pull things forward. Or gravity, it's a power with a tendency. Gravity has a power, has a tendency to pull things down. Sin is a power and it has a tendency to pull things away in active rebellion against God. So here's what Paul says about us in Romans 1, about being hostile to God in our own mind. Romans 1, verse 19, Paul's talking about the fact that because God has made all things, holds all things together, they were made for his glory, he's left his fingerprints on everything. Everything is declaring God in his glory. Romans 1, 19, for what can be known about God is, is plain to the world because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that all of us are without excuse. But here's what sin does with that information that is just writ large over all of creation. Romans 1, 18. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. I always think when I read that of what it takes for me to go on vacation. I, I'm one of those people who overpack when I go on vacation. I don't want to lose anything. So I got to sit on my suitcase and zip it shut just to suppress everything that's wanting to leap out. Why 
Why? When we were, why does sin do that? Because it's hostile to God. I don't want to acknowledge his rule over my life. I don't want to acknowledge that I owe him all things. Sin is in rebellion. It is not neutral. It is not naive. It hates God. Parents, you've got to get this. There is a power in your children and your parenting cannot get it out. You don't feel like when your children walk away from Jesus one day that somehow you just didn't get the equation right. You didn't do everything correctly. Of course you didn't do everything correctly. You're just as broken as they are. The power that is in them hates God and has to be killed by Jesus. And when you see them rebelling against you, you should just simply and compassionately deal with it. Oh, my child, this, this is in me too. And it does the same thing towards God. And now this enemy is still in you. The first rule of war is know your enemy. And this enemy is this rebel power. It's no longer the ruling power in the lives of those who belong to Jesus Christ. It has been dethroned as the ruling power, but it is still a rebel power lurking in the shadows, trying to gain control. And the first rule of war is know that the enemy that you are fighting against hates God. There's a progression here. Alienated hostile in mind, and doing evil deeds. This is what sin does. It always progresses in its corruption and works itself out in our lives. Ideas have legs. What we believe is never neutral. It will produce in us good fruit or bad fruit, sin or righteousness. Believe the gospel. You'll be transformed into the image of Jesus and become like him in your life. Hostile in mind, it will eventually degrade and you'll become much less human. No longer flourish. Instead of embracing God, going back to Romans chapter 1. Verse 21 now, we've gone 18, 19, 20, 21. Here's the progression. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Therefore, this is harsh words, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worship and served the create the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. God in his judgment this is what he does, says to to those who are in active rebellion against him, I don't want you, I don't want your ways. I'm gonna form my mind, belief systems that are hostile to you. At some point, God says, then I will remove my grace that has been holding back your sin and I am going to let it go. And when it does, I'll give you up to every kind of shameful act. This is the enemy that is in us. It has to be killed. We are like Pharaoh 
that we, Chad read from Exodus chapter 5, who when God said, let my people go, he dug in his feet and said, who are you to tell me what to do? Robert Murray McShane, the old Scottish pastor, was fond of saying, I find the roots of all kinds of sin in me. Name it, that root is in me. And if it is not killed, this will break out. This is what the gospel constantly says to us. You are more sinful than you could imagine, but more loved in Christ than you could ever dare dream. So if this is who we are, this is not who God leaves us to be. Notice verse 21, how it starts. And you, who were once... This is how God reacts to our rebellion. And I'm telling you, only the God of the Bible would do something this amazing. Instead of punishing the rebels and completely destroying us, which he has the right to do, he offers us embrace in the most amazing way. Instead of taking power and defending it against rebel onslaughts, he takes his power and he uses it to rescue rebels from our own death sentence. And I'm telling you, only the God of the Bible is this gracious. You will not find this good news anyplace else. Listen to the words of verse 21. This is the heart of the gospel. And you. And God's not afraid to confront the harsh reality of what sin is, but he, he confronts it to expose the cancer. He's like an MRI. Look, this is what's going on in you. You're blind to it. You need to know this is what I see. But like a good doctor, he doesn't just leave you with the diagnosis of the MRI. He says, look, this is what I'm going to do about it now that I've discovered it. Now that you see it, I'm going to do something about it. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, he has now reconciled. He has now reconciled. What's God's response to rebels? Death and judgment in the body of his own son. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Here's the song that's just been sung about Jesus. He is fully God, the one who was before all things, who holds all things together and has now taken on human flesh. Why? To reconcile us by his death. Anselm was the bishop of Canterbury, England in the 11th century. And he wrote this really important book called Why God Became Man. And he explores that question. Why did God become man? Why was it necessary for God the Son to take on human flesh? And an ancient way of writing these kind of books was through a dialogue. And so Anselm would have an imaginary dialogue with his conversation partner. And, he, and Anselm asks this question. And why did God become man? He asks this question of his conversation partner. If someone sins, he has to restore what is taken away before he can be clear of faults. That's just sort of the way justice works. So then, everyone who sins ought to pay back the honor of which he has robbed God. This 
is the satisfaction which every sinner owes. And its conversation partner replies, that's alarming. So Anselm says, basically, look, it gets worse. And he points out your good works are insufficient to pay the debt of your treason, your rebellion against God, because here's why. If he is the, if he is the God who owes owns everything, then you as his creature owe him everything, and any of your good works are just payment that is owed your benefactor. And then his conversation partner gets rattled by this, and he says, if I already owed God myself and all my powers even before I sinned, I have nothing left to give him for my sin. And Anselm's reply is this. Thus, only God could repay the debt that is owed to satisfy his wrath. But it was man who sinned against God in our bodies, not God who sinned. So man must pay the debt. So get this, Colossians 2, 9, for in Jesus the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily The other reason that God took on a body was to reconcile you in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So this is Anselm's kicker line. Why did God become man? Here's why. Because the debt was so great that while man alone owed it, only God could pay it. So that same person must be both man and God. Thus it was necessary for God to take manhood into the unity of persons, God and man, so that he who in his own nature ought to pay and could not, that's you and I, should be in the form of a person who could. Now get this. He bore our sins of rebellion, the body on a tree, a body God had prepared for him. But he didn't just reconcile you back to God by taking away God's wrath. He who was fully God and fully man fully drank the cup of God's wrath until it was dry in our place. But he went beyond He doesn't just take you back to square one. He doesn't just pay the debt. To belong to Jesus means that what is true about Jesus is true about me too. The gospel is just more than you're forgiven. Now go on your way. And some of you, I think most of us are just running around with this vague sense of guilt hanging over our head. And it sort of functions like this in religious people. You just haven't done enough. You live with this vague sense of guilt that the requirement for righteousness has not been filled up. Look at all the things I'm not doing enough for the poor. I'm not doing enough evangelism. I'm not reading my Bible enough. I'm not having enough people in my home. Just the list is endless. And we walk around with this vague sense of guilt to the next religious activity or to the next function, wondering in the back of my mind, is it enough? Is it enough? Jesus is enough. He has reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy 
and blameless and above reproach before him. You've seen it in the movies where people arrive at some big party, some aristocratic to-do. And at these big parties with all of this flair, someone's at the door announcing the guests. Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so with their title, the you know, Duke or Duchess of York, or this is the baron of such and such a land. It announces it to the whole party. Well, at the door of God's household, if you are in Christ, because he died your traitor's death, every time you approach God, here is the announcement that is made. Paul, holy, blameless, and above reproach, free from accusation, Nothing will stick to him anymore. All has been satisfied in his body by his death. And you want to whisper into the announcer's ear, but don't you know what I've been doing? Don't you know where my mind has been this week? Don't you know what I've looked at at the internet? Don't you know who I am? And the announcer at the door is Jesus, and he looks you in the eye and he says, is your faith in me? My Father, holy, blameless, free from accusation. And then you march into God's presence with boldness and confidence because you know in Christ, He now delights in you. That language of holy and blameless, it was the language of the sacrificial lambs that were brought and had to be examined. They had to be perfect, without spot, blemish-free so that God would accept them. That's the language that describes those who are in Christ. His holiness, his righteousness, his father's pleasure for him. All that the father loves in Christ is now yours. The language of free from accusation is the language of the courtroom. No charges can be laid against God's elect anymore because you are in Christ Your record now stands this way. When God opens his book of judgment, this is what he sees. Your name written because you belong to Jesus Christ and this declaration next to it, righteous. Provided. Verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. It is easy to think that getting saved is just a one-time act. Sign the card, walk the aisle, be baptized. And I'm, I think, look, I'm, I'm saved. I can live however I want to live now. And so this warning needs to come. Some of you just need to hear this as a warning. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. You've got to keep walking with Jesus. Like this is what's true about you if you're walking with Jesus. Now that is a warning for some of you, but for some of you, you need some assurance that comes from the gospel, that you're actually holding fast to the gospel. You have a right to joy that belongs to you if you are a follower of Jesus who is holding fast to Jesus, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. 
And this is what Jesus says in John 15. Abide in me, I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. This is what it looks like to, to walk with Jesus, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. It sounds like, like Peter and John's gospel just a chapter later than that announcement of abide in the vine. Jesus says some hard things in John chapter 6. And when he says those hard things, people leave him. And he, so he looks at his 12 disciples and he says to them, you going to go too? And Peter's response is what it looks like to continue in the faith. Where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. Where else are we going to go? There's no one else who could deal with my problem of sin in this way. That's what it means to be stable and steadfast. It's not stable and steadfast that's based on my stability or my steadfastness to Jesus, but on his steadfastness to me. It's not hope that's based on my stability. I'm too up and down during the week, during my life. It's based on the strong stability of Jesus. And that's the kind of stable and steadfast hope that is in the gospel. Christian joy and Christian hope are not for those who have it all together or have it all figured out, but who are constantly saying, There is so much wrong with me, so much deep in my heart. Jesus, you're the only one who can deal with this. You're the only one who can deliver me from sin's power. You're the only one who can deliver me from sin's penalty and the wrath of God. Where else am I going to go? Lord Nelson was a British Navy officer in the 1800s. And Lord Nelson always won. He always defeated his enemies. He was a better tactician than everybody else. He was always had stronger ships. He always won. But he was also known as an overwhelmingly merciful man. And many naval captains would treat people that they defeated by utterly destroying them. But not Lord Nelson. He would not pillage their boats. He would not sink them. He would welcome them if they put their arms down with mercy and dignity. And so his reputation of mercy had spread throughout the seas. And one ship approached, and as they often did, they just surrendered when they saw it was Lord Nelson because they knew they could not win. And so one captain approached Nelson with his hand outstretched to greet him and receive mercy with one hand and his sword in the other. And Nelson famously replied, First your sword, and then your hand. And you see that God does more than just welcome us onto his boat. He brings us into his family. He treats us as equals with his son. Holy, free, no longer can be charged. Blameless. 
And every day in the party of God's household, this is what's announced. Wake up, this is what's announced. But if you've not yet come to Jesus Christ as your Savior, or if you have walked with Him as your Savior and still want to keep the sword in one hand and receive mercy in the other, first the sword and then the hand, and then stay on the boat. This is a party where the sun has made us fit. And we will sail forever and ever and ever into the new heavens and new earth where there will be no more sadness, no more brokenness, no more of all that's wrong with us. And the world will be right again. Let's pray. Lord, we um, pray today as we come, having heard your word, build in us joy, hope, peace. Remind us of the sinfulness of sin that we would hate it and love you. And remind us of the sufficiency of Jesus. That we would constantly, constantly be turning to him as our only hope. For we pray this in his name. Amen.